Philippians chapter 1. So this week, I, uh, I was, it was right after the weekend, and I was kind of excited about this week, had a lot going on, and so you know what, I'm going to get an early start on the week, and uh, I'm going to get to office a little bit early and just kind of hit the ground running, you know? You guys have been there, right? And so as I'm headed to the front door, I'm kind of pumped, I'm ready, ready to psych to get in my car and drive to work and lay everything out, and there is my son's car seat sitting next to the door. And that was to serve as a reminder for me that over the weekend, at some point, I was supposed to fix it because uh, there was a, a factory recall, and so part of the harness system needed to be replaced with a new piece that they sent us. And like any good father, I'd put this off for several months. And so it was like, oh, you know what, I'm actually going to take the car seat out of my wife's car, put it right here, and then I'll see it, and that will stop me from going to work and forgetting about it. So I see it, and I'm like, okay, well, Carrie and the boys, they need to go somewhere. Like, they're not going to be able to leave if I don't fix this, but no worries, you know, because I, I, I'm running early. I'm, I'm ready to get to work. I was going to get a jump start, but that's okay. I've got time. I've got time right now. And after all, how hard can it be? How many of you asked that question, right? Putting your, your daughter's dollhouse together, building that Lego castle. How hard can it be? It's kid stuff. This shouldn't be a big deal at all. So I get the car seat. I get the new piece. I'm like, okay, to put this piece in, I got to take this other piece out just to give you an idea of how this works. There's this piece that comes up through the bottom of the car seat, and there's a bracket that holds it in place. And that bracket isn't attached to anything, but it has to come through this slot underneath, all right? And so you have to turn it, and then it should just slide right through. But after about two seconds, I realized there is no way that this is happening. Like, this is a physical impossibility. There's no way this bracket comes through that slot. So I'm messing with them. I'm like, do I have the wrong angle? Do I need to twist it? Like, how's this going to work? And after a minute, I'm like, okay, this is not going to come through this way. Maybe I need to, like, push it through. So I, I flip the car seat over, and I, at this point, I'm trying to, like, push it through the slot, and that's not working, and I'm getting a little bit more frustrated because all that extra time I had, I see it dwindling away. And so I'm kind of trying to push it through there, and I'm like, this isn't going to work. So I get a hammer, and I'm like, all right, I'm just going to kind of, like, leverage this sucker out. You know, I'm going to, like, push down with a hammer, because that's stronger than my hand, and that's still not working. So I get a block of wood, and I put it over the bracket, and now I'm hitting the block of wood with the hammer, trying to drive that bracket through the slot, and eventually I just discard with the wood altogether. And now I've just got the hammer, and I'm just taking it out on this car seat. If you reach that point where it's like, you know what, I don't care if I bust this thing up, because that's just going to justify my anger, you know? It's like, look, I put it into pieces. Who cares? You know what? That just shows these people who manufactured this, they're morons. Like, this is self-justification. I don't even care anymore. So I'm banging on this thing. Finally, at this point, I have lost all perspective. I'm seeing red. Everything is just ended for me. I flipped the car seat over, and I literally stand on it with two feet. And I grab that harness, and it's about halfway through at this point, and like deadlift style, I'm just like pulling on it until, bam, thing pops out like a gunshot. And I, oh man, I'm not in a good place. <laughs> I've got words going through my head I can't repeat. I, I've, whatever sanctification I had has leaked out all over the floor. You know, it's just, it's over for me. You guys have been there, right? You've all had, we've all had these car seat moments. Those moments that catch you unawares is not what you were planning. It's not what you were hoping for. It's not what you thought life was supposed to be like. And maybe it's sometimes as little as a car seat, but a lot of times it's much bigger than that, isn't it? It's, it's when you're stuck in that job that you wish you didn't have, and you keep trying to get out of it, and God keeps closing those doors, or maybe you find out that you don't have a job anymore, and you didn't plan on that. Or maybe it's when you get a call from a doctor 
And you get some news that you weren't expecting. It's going to change your world forever. Your life is turned upside down. Whatever perspective you had on life, it's, it's different now. It just looks different. We've all had those moments where life seems to unravel. And we look around and we're like, okay, God, this is not what I planned. Like, this is unfair. How is this happening to me right now? This was my goal. This was my life path. This is what it was going to look like. And now, man, everything's turned upside down. And how do we recover from that? <clears throat> Excuse me. I think we usually handle those types of moments, those types of situations in a couple of different ways. Oftentimes kind of unhealthy and unhelpful ways, I think. Uh, one of the things that we do is we, we want to complain to other people and try to get them onto our side. So this is what I did after the car seat incident. I immediately take that piece upstairs to my wife, Carrie, because what I want her to know is just how horrible that was. I'm like, babe, you would not believe this car seat piece. Like, it took me forever. I'm not early to work. I'm late to work now. It's insane. And what I want from her is not just sympathy. I don't want her to just be like, oh, babe, thanks for doing that for me. You know, I know that wasn't part of your day. I appreciate that. No, no, no. I want her to feel it. You know, I want her to, like, be enraged with me. I want her to take my side and be like, yeah, those Kiko manufacturers. Oh, I can't stand them. I can't believe they did that. I want her to feel it with me. I want her to be on my side. This is what we do with social media, right? Get on Facebook. I hate my brother. I hate my girlfriend. I can't believe my husband did this. I can't believe my boss. He said this. She said this. And then what do we do? We wait. Is someone going to like it? Oh, they liked it. Okay, good. Whoo. Oh, I'm justified now. Somebody's on my side. Bomb for my soul. I just feel better. Don't you? You just feel better. Somebody liked my comment. If I can get the more likes, the better I feel about it. Because they know I've been wronged. Life is unfair. I've been dealt a bad hand. Right? We complain and we angle for sympathy. I think the other thing that we do is, uh, at least this is one of my, my tricks, is uh, we play mind games with ourselves. We try to compare our situation to somebody else's. Somebody's situation who's worse than ours so that we feel better about ourselves. So somewhere in the midst of that car seat, I like could stop and be like, you know, people in Haiti, they probably don't have car seats. They, they might not even have cars. Now, I'm not actually going to do anything to help people in Haiti. I just, I just want to use what they experience as a prop to feel better about myself, right? Can I just say that this is sad and pathetic, and I'm guilty of this all the time. It is sad and pathetic. It's wrong to basically take somebody else's situation. Maybe it's a friend whose car isn't as nice as yours, or their financial system uh, situation isn't as secure as yours, or their marriage isn't as great as yours. Now, yours may not be doing good, but at least we're not like those people. Can I just tell you that, that the only thing other people's situations should uh, generate in us is compassion that leads to action, and it's one of the things I'm really grateful for people here at GVF. I see so many of you who look around the world and you see people who are as not as fortunate. And instead of just saying, wow, man, I feel so much better about my situation. Sucks to be them. You jump in and say, okay, you know what? What am I going to do? How am I going to reach out to them? How am I going to be a blessing to them? But this is, this is one of those mind games that we play. But can I just say, look, it is not cool to find comfort in other people's situations. It's not cool to use somebody else's misery or hardship, whatever that may be, just to feel better about ourselves. But these are the, the games that we play. We complain to other people, be on my side, be on my side, justify I'm wronged, and then we, we compare other people so that we feel better about ourselves. And if those things don't work, then if it's really a, a tough thing, right? If it's one of those life situations that you don't easily shrug off, then sometimes we just check out. 
May we just go into denial. May we just try to push it down and move past and hope that time truly does heal all wounds. But I think that God has a different strategy for us. I think he has a different approach entirely. And it's not to complain, it's not to compare. I think what God wants us to do is I think he wants us to look at life differently. I think he wants us to begin to see the world and our life situations and circumstances and tragedies and heartache and loss and success and failure and all those things through his eyes because the world looks very different through his eyes. And when we come to the Apostle Paul, as we're, we're doing all through this series in Philippians, we've come face to face with a man who gets this. This is a guy who does not see the world the way that you and I see the world. He does not judge the world the way that we judge our lives and circumstances. It's like all of us are working off this set of criteria about how to judge whether we're successful, whether we're failures, whether we're rich, whether we're poor, whether we're happy or sad or whatever it is. And then Paul is over here and he's got a completely different scorecard. It's a completely different way of scoring his life. And if you and I are going to be able to handle the hard knocks that life throws at us. Anything from a car seat, to a job, to a disease, to loss of a loved one, whatever it is, wherever it is in that spectrum, if we're going to handle that without complaining or comparing or just checking out on life, in a way that those things don't crush us, and they don't turn our world upside down, they don't unravel our perspective, then we have to have a different scorecard. We have to look at the world the way God does. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. And so in Philippians 1, we're going to start at verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So just a little context here. If you remember, Paul is writing to the church at Philippi. This is a church that he helped to plant. He knows these people. These are brothers and sisters in Christ who he knows. When he's writing to them, he has faces in mind. He says, I want you to know, brothers. Now remember, they are asking him a question. They've sent a care package to Paul. He's in prison in Rome. And they're like, Paul, hey man, we heard that you're in prison. We're sending you this care package. Now tell us, how are you doing? Like, are you alive? Are you well? Are you okay? But notice Paul doesn't really answer that question, does he? What does he say? I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So what has happened to Paul? Well, it's a a short list. Let's see, he's been beaten, he's been flogged, he's been tortured, he's been imprisoned, he's been shipwrecked. Most recently, what he's probably referring to here is that he's been imprisoned. He's in chains for the sake of the gospel. He's in Rome under heavy guard. So what has happened to me, though, he says, has really served to advance the gospel. Notice he's not complaining. He's not like, oh man, you wouldn't believe the situation that I'm in. I'm under lock and key and the food is terrible and the living conditions are awful and you wouldn't believe the company I've got to keep. No, he doesn't say that. He's not comparing himself to anybody else. In fact, they're asking Paul, how are you doing? And he doesn't really tell them at all how he's doing because it doesn't matter. For Paul, it's like he's saying, you know what, look, let me tell you, everything that's happened to me, it doesn't matter. The point isn't me. It's not about me. It's about the gospel. So don't worry about this whole prison thing because actually God has used this to advance the gospel. He's used it to take the gospel into places that it would not have gone otherwise. So Paul, how is that possible? How is it that you are in prison and somehow this has advanced the gospel? Well, look at what he says, verse 13. It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. 
He says, look, people are hearing about the gospel who would never have heard about the gospel otherwise. He says, this imperial guard, so the imperial guard, just to give you an idea, this is the praetorian guard. This was the emperor's, check this out, this was the emperor's personal army. So if you go back into to Roman history, if you were part of the Roman army, the, the expanded Roman army, okay, so the legions, the centurions, these are the guys you read about who are like occupying Israel and all this. They are the ones who are going out and they're conquering new lands and keeping the peace and all of that. Those armies are not allowed inside of Rome. And the reason for that is very simple. Uh, if you were a great military commander and you get commissioned to have all of these armies and you're going to go out and you're going to conquer these new lands, when you, people start to hear about you and you start to get kind of, well, I'm pretty great stuff. Look at all the things that I've done. And you come back, you start to think, man, maybe I'm a great emperor. Maybe I should be Caesar. And so they keep the, to keep the armies outside was basically just a way to avoid civil war. You don't get to come in town, into town with, your, with, your, with your, uh, your army, right? You have to stay outside until ev- everyone has been decommissioned, until that military leader had put their mantle of authority down. Then they could come back into the city. So inside the city, the emperor has his guard, and they're the police, and they guard over all the political prisoners. Uh, they keep the peace. They do all of that, all right? And so Paul now, notice, he's a political prisoner, And he is underguarded by the Praetorian Guard, the Imperial Guard. These are the emperors. This is the very heart of everything that's going on in the empire. And these guys, you almost feel sorry for them. Because they are chained to Paul. Day after day after day that turn into weeks and months, one, two, maybe three years. Can you imagine every day you're walking in, they're chaining you up to Paul, and this guy turns to you and says, have I told you about Jesus yet? They're like, oh my gosh, please, can we talk about, no, 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 the gospel. Let's talk about the gospel some more. Like, you think that your friend on Facebook who's selling essential oils is annoying? You have no idea. Like, you are dealing with Paul here. He's like, let me tell you about Jesus again and again and again and again. They haven't got a chance. They haven't got a prayer. They are chained to this guy. Talk about a captive audience. By the way, is there anyone more annoying to mess with than Paul? Is there anyone more aggravating to persecute than the Apostle Paul? It's like, Paul, we're going to lock you up for talking about Jesus. Fantastic. I've got a new audience. Paul, we're going to beat you and send you out. Just don't talk about Jesus anymore. Oh, you you let me go? Are you crazy? Now I'm going to tell everybody about Jesus. Paul, we're going to kill you. Fantastic. I'm going to dine with Jesus tonight. Man, he's annoying. He's aggravating. There was this guy, John Chrysostom. He's a handsome devil, isn't he? He, uh, so this guy was uh, uh, one of the early church fathers, and he was out in Constantinople, which was later, as the kingdom was getting divvied up, it was uh, split at different times. He was part of the Eastern Empire. And at some point, he really, really, really ticks off the wife of the emperor, Arcadius. And so she threatens him with banishment or worse. And, and I love this. This is his response, though. This is so fantastic. I just wanted you to read it. It's a little bit long, but hang with me, okay? Because this is beautiful. He says this. If the empress wishes to banish me, let her do so. The earth is the Lord's. In other words, hey, where's she going to send me? It all belongs to God. I don't care. If she wants to have me sawn asunder, I have Isaiah for an example. He was cut in two. Not a happy way to go. If she wants wants me to be drowned in the ocean, I think of Jonah. If I'm to be thrown in the fire, the three men in the furnace suffer the same. If cast before wild beasts, I remember Daniel in the lion's den. If she wants me to be stoned, I have before me Stephen, the first martyr. If she demands my head, let her do so. John the Baptist shines before me. 
Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall leave this world. Paul reminds me if I still please the world, I would not be the servant of Christ. Sounds a lot like Paul, doesn't it? You chain Paul up to somebody, oh, that person is going to go to bed with the gospel running through their head every single day, every night, for years, for years. And it's not just the guards. It's not just the guards who are hearing it, right? What does it say? It's become through the, known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest. This is all the rest. It is referring to anybody who is in Rome, has any connection to the political and legal system, what's going on. Because check this out. Paul's case was not a normal case. Paul was a political prisoner, but he was in prison not for anything that he had done. See, it wasn't illegal to talk about Jesus. At this point, it wasn't illegal to be a Christian. No, see, what was happening was that Paul was going around talking about Jesus, and everywhere he went— People were getting all up in arms. People were getting all bothered and and riots and chaos and everything else. And so they arrested him almost to keep the peace. And so then he appeals to Caesar. They drag him out to Rome. And so now Caesar wants to hear this case to find out what is this all about? Like, why is this causing so much chaos all over my empire? Like, who's this Jesus person? What's this Christianity about? Why is this happening? And so what everybody has come to understand is that Paul is not in prison because of anything that he's done. He's in prison because of the gospel. He's in prison not because he's Paul. He's in prison because he's Christ's man. He belongs to Jesus. It's not Paul that's on trial. It's the gospel. And so imagine this for a moment, that Paul is basically God's Trojan horse. You've got this empire. You've got the seat of the empire itself. And Paul is God's inside man. And he takes Paul and he puts him absolutely in the heart of enemy territory where they're worshiping idols and all kinds of other gods. And he says, you're going to tell people about Jesus. People who would never have heard it before. Isn't that cool? So cool. So Paul is in prison. And yet, and yet, more people are hearing about the gospel. It is breaking into new territory. But it's not just through Paul. It's not just through Paul. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Notice he says most of the brothers. He doesn't say many of. He doesn't say some of. He says most of. A quick aside here. I just want to be really clear here. One of the, the, the misconceptions that we have oftentimes is that the, it's the professional missionaries, the pastors. They're the ones who are supposed to be talking about Jesus and annoying people with that. Um, actually, that doesn't seem to be Paul's view here because notice he doesn't say most of the pastors, most of the priests, most of the missionaries. He says most of the who? Brothers. The believers, brothers and sisters, men and women, followers of Jesus. He says they've become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment and are much more bold to speak. You would think, you would think that these people would be running for the hills. You know, you're starting to get a sense here. Okay, well, hold. Paul just got imprisoned. Paul, like the apostle Paul, our leader, this guy, he's now in prison. Okay, guys, it's time to, let's take it down a notch. Everybody play it cool. Duck for cover. Just let's see how this all plays out. But it's just the opposite. It's just the opposite. They are now actually more bold to preach the gospel, to tell other people that I am a follower of Jesus Christ. How is that? How is that? 
Uh, Eusebius has a church history uh, that he, he writes about the early church. Eusebius uh, wrote about the time of Constantine, so after the persecutions that went on. So I said, right now, Paul is not on trial himself because it's not illegal to be a Christian when Paul's writing here. But later on, it does. When the persecutions really begin and get ramped up for the Christian church, it is illegal to become a Christian. It is illegal to not sacrifice to the gods and to the idols. It's illegal to talk about Jesus. And the punishment, oftentimes, was death. And not a merciful beheading kind of death. Like, horrific. You can't even imagine kind of death. Like, literally tortured until they died. Uh, Eusebius says that there were Roman leaders who basically made a game out of it because these stubborn, dang Christians just wouldn't give up. So they started coming up with the most diabolical, the most horrific ways that they could torture them to see if anybody would break. And here's what's amazing. What Eusebius says is that not on occasion, not just once or twice, but repeatedly, when these tribunals would roll into town and they'd bring that first poor soul, man or woman, up front, and they go, tell us, are you a Christian? Will you sacrifice to these gods? And that person said, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. He is my Lord and Savior, and I will not sacrifice to these idols knowing that it meant horrific death. That not just once or twice, but repeatedly, there would be this wave of other believers who would storm the platform to say, I'm a Christian too. I'm a follower of Jesus too. I'm not going to sacrifice. I'm not going to denounce my Lord. He is my God. Even though they knew it was their death. Sometimes it just took one voice and then there would be this chorus. See, if history has taught us anything, if history has taught us anything, is that persecution does not kill the church. You look anywhere in the world, even today, you look wherever there's persecution, that's where the church is growing. You can't kill the church by persecuting it. The only way you're going to kill the church is by making it feel really, really, really comfortable and accepted in the world. Uh, Philip Jensen says, you, you can't kill Christianity by persecuting it. You have to seduce it. You have to domesticate it. <laughs> in other words, when the church is really in trouble is when we get really comfortable. And we start going, oh man, the world is not so bad. You know, we start to share the world's values and the world's goals and the world's ideals. And so suddenly this becomes really difficult to say anything bad about the world, doesn't it? See, look, the gospel message is the good news followed by bad news. Now, the bad news is that the world is in trouble. You and I, we're all in trouble, that we have all rebelled. We are in open rebellion against the God of the universe. That's the bad news. The world is lost. Its value system is screwed up. Everything is bad, all right, in and of itself. And the good news is that because of Christ, there is a chance for forgiveness, that he's offered a way to be saved, all right? But if we are buddied up with the world, it becomes really difficult to say that the world is doing anything wrong because now I'm saying that I'm doing something wrong. If I say, the world, these values that you have, those aren't good values, but if they become my values, well, now I'm, I'm preaching against myself. That's no fun. See, I don't want to tell the world to repent if it means I have to repent. I don't want to tell the world that it's lost if that means that I'm lost. You can't kill the church with persecution, but you can seduce it. You can domesticate it. But on the other hand, when we stand up and say, you know what? The world, when we recognize the world isn't the way it's supposed to be, and the world says, be quiet. We don't want to hear from you anymore. Then it makes all the more sense to speak up. And sometimes it just takes that one voice, and it raises a chorus. 
See, look, at the heart of Christianity, we have a king who was persecuted, who suffered and died to save the world. And his teaching, what he teaches us, what we see throughout Scripture, we're going to get more into as we go through the book of Philippians, is that salvation isn't for the powerful and the victorious. Salvation comes through self-sacrifice. We have a king who taught us that, that to be great in the kingdom means you've got to be the least of these. If you want to be first, you've got to be last. You want to find your life, you've got to lose it. He says that the true wealth can't be measured through your bank account and that real power comes through weakness. Now you take somebody who believes like that and you try to persecute them, you're just playing into their hands. See, those people, they're not living by the world's standard. They're not living by the world's scorecard of how they're doing in life. Man, they've got a completely different game and it's a bigger game going on by a completely different scorecard. And you've got somebody like that who can stare death in the face. Whatever's going on in their lives with peace and joy, and that's a hard person to ignore. Because that's not natural. I mean, that's supernatural. To have somebody who can say, you know what, it doesn't matter what's going on in my life. It doesn't matter whether I'm in prison or whether I'm free. And whatever tragedy or trial or heartache or loss that they keep saying, you know what, it's not about me. And there's this peace and joy and contentment. And that's incredibly attractive. The whole world is looking for that. And so the gospel, the gospel is not hindered by any of that. That's, that's what Paul wants to reassure his readers. Hey, the gospel mission, it's going strong. They put me in prison, yeah. Yeah. But it doesn't matter. People are hearing the gospel. We've never heard it before. And people are speaking out the name of Jesus who would never have spoken uh, before. Isn't that cool? There's a second problem, though. It's not just that Paul is being persecuted inside the church, or excuse me, outside the church. He's also being persecuted inside the church. And this is important. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. He says, look, there's people, I just said, what did he just say? That most of the brothers, they're not talking about Jesus. He says, look, some indeed are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry. I want to admit, he says, that not all of them are doing it for the right motives, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Paul says, look, there's two camps, two different groups of people. He says, some of them, they are preaching Jesus for the right reasons. They're telling their neighbors, they're, they're saying, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christ follower. And he says, they're doing it because they love Jesus and they care about the gospel and they love me. He says, but there's this other group of people, they're doing it out of selfishness, out of trying to injure Paul in some way. Now, you can imagine how this happens, all right? You've got this church. You've got this church in Rome. And it's starting to grow a little bit. And you've got these church leaders and maybe they tried to get in that position. Maybe they just sort of found themselves naturally kind of out in front of everybody else, but they kind of like it. They find everybody asks their opinion. Everybody's following them. They're respecting them. I like it when people ask me what I think about this. I like it when people are following me, and man, I'm kind of a big shot. And then what happens? Paul shows up, and suddenly they're not the biggest show in town anymore. Suddenly, everybody doesn't care about their opinion. They want to know what Paul thinks. They're not following me anymore. They're following Paul. I don't like this anymore. 
Like I was the leader, I was out in front, and now there's this Paul guy, and I can't believe this is happening, but now Paul's in prison. So Paul, while you're in prison, while you're out of the picture, I'm going to go around and start telling people about Jesus because they're going to follow me. They're going to follow me. Paul, you're out of the picture. I'm going to one-up you now, and I'm going to tell people about Jesus, and my church is going to grow, and my church is going to be bigger and more influential, and I'm going to get that respect that I want. Praise God that there's no churches like that in this world today. Can I, can I tell you something? One of the things that I love about GVF, and we're not a perfect church, okay? So if you're, if you're new here, don't take this as like, we're so great. We got all kinds of problems, all right? The, the, the best thing that we have going for us is that we have a holy God who indwells us and leads us, and we are wholly dependent upon him. So that even as we are messing up along the way, he keeps redirecting us, and we just keep putting that in front of him, okay? But one of the things that I love about our church is that we are not all about our church, one of the things I love about GVF is that we're not setting out to create GVF, the megachurch. We're going to be amazing. Everyone's going to know our name. That's not it. That's not it. That's why we are part of RISE. That's why we partner with churches like Ironworks and Calvary Bible Church, because we absolutely care about God's church and God's kingdom to be a blessing around this community and outside of it and beyond, not just to build up our own church. It's not our goal. It's not what we're about. And we pray and we hope that churches like Ironworks and Calvary Bible Church and other churches that are preaching the gospel, man, that they, they have to blow the doors off with so many people showing up. We don't care whether you're here or there. We want you to be where God wants you to be. Now, do I want this room to be filled? Absolutely. I pray that every Sunday morning I walk in here, God, may you fill this place with worshipers of you and people who are maybe just intrigued by the idea of you. But that's not what it's about. It's not about GVF. It's about building God's kingdom. And so these guys, they are preaching Paul for all the wrong reasons, right? They, they are, they're preaching, Paul, uh, preaching Christ for all the wrong reasons against Paul. Hey, Paul, you are out of the picture. We're going to one-up you out of selfishness. And what's Paul's response? What's Paul's response? Preach on, brother. What then? It's an I- idiom in, in Greek. It just means, who cares? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He says, you think, you think you're like hurting me right now? You think this is somehow so much about me that because you're preaching Jesus, I'm suffering. I'm like, oh no, please stop doing that, right? They've missed it. They, they think they're somehow like beating Paul at his own game when in reality, all they're doing is adding to the only scorecard that Paul's keeping and that's how many people are hearing about Jesus. So check, check this out. Paul is not looking at his situation. If you haven't caught on to this yet, all right? Paul is not looking at his circumstances the way that you and I would. He's got a completely different paradigm, a completely different grid, a completely different scorecard. He's looking at it the way God looks at it. And so Paul has aligned his life and his, his goals with God, and he knows that God's goal for his life is not that he would be happy and successful and comfortable and wealthy, right? That God's goal for Paul's life is that he would use it. That it would be an instrument of the gospel, that because of Paul's life, in whatever way it looks like, however it plays out, that the gospel would be breaking into new territory, that enemy strongholds would be busted up because the name of Jesus Christ is going forward. That's God's goal for Paul's life. And by that scorecard, Paul is mopping up. He, 
He's kicking rear and taking names, right? He is dominating. People are hearing about Jesus. And so the question, right, here, here we go. Here's the question you guys, we, we gotta be asking ourselves here. What, what scorecard are we using? See, here's what happens. If, if we are using the world scorecard, if we, we bought into this American dream scorecard, or I know we've got people not from America, so whatever scorecard you wanna label it as, all right? But you guys know what I'm talking about here. If we're using this scorecard over here, that this is about having the perfect house and the perfect job and the perfect, you know, retirement plan and 2.5 kids, you always feel sorry for the half, uh, the dog and the cat and everybody, right? If that's our dream, then guess what? Suffering and sacrifice have no part in that scorecard. It doesn't compute. Like you lose every time something goes wrong. Every time something doesn't go perfect in your life, there's a tragedy, you got a car seat that you're dealing with, or you're losing your job. Whatever it is, every time that happens, you go, oh man, that's a strike against me. I just lost that round. But see, what if, what if God's desire for us wasn't that? What if his goal for us wasn't that? See, we're, we're looking around and we're going, okay, Jesus says I'm supposed to pick up my cross and follow him. But then we're looking around going, me? Like that cross? I don't want to deal with that cross. And so when God takes this cross of suffering and heartache and loss or situation, whatever it is, and he lays it on our back and we're going, this isn't fair. I can't believe you just put this cross on me. What are you thinking, God? But what if God's plan isn't that we'd be happy and healthy and wealthy and comfortable for all of our lives? What if God's goal for our life, whatever the circumstances, was that we would be a light in a dark place? What if that's the scorecard we're supposed to be using? What, what if God wants you and me to be his people, to be his Trojan horses, to be his inside man, his inside woman, in whatever that circumstance is, right there, right then? I mean, can you imagine what that would change? How that would change our perspective, how that would change our attitude, that we could say, God, you know what? This job, I hate this job. I'm stuck in this job. I keep asking you, God, to let me out, but you keep me here. You have chained me to this job, God. It is my captive audience. God, you've chained me here, and so I'm not going to waste this opportunity every day that I have to go back and have to deal with this boss or this client or these coworkers or whatever it is. Day after day after day, I'm going to be planting seeds of the gospel. I'm going to seek to be a blessing. I'm going to look for opportunities to pray for them, to listen to their stories, to eat, maybe find a way to serve them in some way, and then to share my story. What if that was, what if that was our attitude? Like, what if that became our scorecard? God, you know what? I've got this, I've got this illness. And I keep praying that you would take it from me. But for whatever reason, you haven't answered that prayer yet. And so I am chained to this hospital or this doctor's office and these doctors and these nurses and other patients who are going through similar things. God, I don't want to waste this. So I'm going to use this day after day after day after day to plant seeds for your gospel. God, I am chained to my family. Heaven help us. We could just get rid of our families, right? Some of us feel that way. I get that, right? Or maybe it's not your whole family. It's just that one person. Oh, why did they have to marry in? You know? And you're chained to them. Okay, is there an opportunity here to somehow be a blessing in their lives? Don't waste that opportunity. You've got that neighbor who drives you crazy and you wish that they'd move and they're up at 4 a.m. with their snowblower and you're like, could you just wait a couple of hours, man? Just a little bit, right? 
Tell them about Jesus. Maybe they'll move. See, it's a win-win. <laughs> Look, one of our things is that we, we, we wait around and we go, okay, you know what? When everything gets perfect, when, when life finally makes sense and settles down, we can put a nice little bow on it. Then, then we're going to actually think about these things. Then we're going to say, okay, you know what? Now I'm ready. Everything's in place. Can you imagine if Paul said, okay, God, as soon as I get out of prison, then I'm going to start telling people about Jesus again. See, but we're hanging back and we're like, okay, God, I've got, as soon as my finances make a little bit more sense, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a little bit more to the missions that are going on in this world. Or as soon as all the chaos of my life calms down, then, then I can actually start to think about, okay, how do I tell my story? How can I serve someone? Or maybe it's when my kids get into school or then out of school or graduate or have kids or whatever they're on that spectrum, right? We just, we find these things. But can I tell you something? That is never, ever going to happen. Life is never perfect. It's never perfect. There's always something else. But listen to me. Do not miss this, okay? I am absolutely convinced to the depth of my soul that it's those moments, it's those opportunities, it's in the heartache, it's in the struggle, it's in the loss, it's in the frustration that God wants to do some of his most profound and significant work in you. And to use you in the lives of others. So don't waste your chains. Like, don't waste that time. Don't waste that opportunity. Like, if you go through one of those moments in life that that the rest of the world would avoid at all costs, but God has given that to you, if you go through that and you haven't grown, and the gospel's influence has not grown through you, what a waste. What a waste. Don't waste the cross that God gives to you. Don't waste your chains. We worship and we follow a king who was persecuted and he suffered and he died to free us from the chains of Sin and death. But we're still here. And it's not by accident. Who are you chained to? Who's your captive audience? Because Christ died for us, we don't have to be defined by our sad stories. We can move past them. In fact, we can use them. They can be for his glory. Because he died for us, we can live and love regardless of our circumstances. So how are you scoring your life? How are you scoring your life? How are you keeping score? What scorecard are you using? Because listen, if you use the world's scorecard of the American dream or whatever, however you want to define it, can I tell you something? You're going to lose every time. There's always going to be losses along the way. You might have some victories along the way. Eventually they all end, by the way. But there's always going to be these disappointments, these struggles. And we'll be crushed by them. We'll try to push past them. They'll always leave scars and we never fully recover. And there'll always be losses in our win-loss column. But if we use God's scorecard, you never lose. Because they can take your life 
And you can lose your house, and your job, and your family, and your kids, and everything else. And like the Apostle Paul, still be able to say, I consider these present sufferings nothing compared to the glory to come. 